Welcome to the Psych Experience. Welcome to Psychcast, the podcast for those who love psychology and psychiatry. Dr. Nadi, why do you hate oral tradition so much? <laughs> well, um, I think um, I think I, uh, I started to use that expression uh, because. Um, all right, so what happens in our field is our field is, even though we could easily claim is the most primitive field of medicine, right? Right. We cover that we don't have tests. Our diagnostic methods are kind of ugh, mm-hmm. right. The treatments there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of a lot of overlapping diagnoses. There's a lot of uh, inconsistencies from a philosophical perspective. Um, in addition to that, there's this huge in addition to all that complexity that psychiatry entails, and keep in mind, the, the complexity of psychiatry also entails the complexity of psychology, mm-hmm. right? I mean, think of all psychological, psychology uh, schools, schools of psychological thinking. We have psychoanalysis, we have behaviorism, we have cognitive behavioral uh, uh, theory, we have cognitivists, we have... Um, systemic therapies. We, 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 even within psychoanalysis, we have a lot of uh, dissonance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so on top of all that complexity, we have a sea of publications. You're going to find articles saying every thinkable thing. Mm-hmm. You're going to find... First, let's start with positive studies. You can find positive studies on nearly every thinkable thing. Um, you take a you take a medication like for example lamictal lamotrigine approved for uh, exclusively so far as long as I know approved for bipolar depression mm-hmm. unfortunately prescribed as an antidepressant left and right but hey it was approved for bipolar depression and what in for what it was approved for it failed randomized controlled trials but it was looked into enough times now. If you look enough times into something, eventually you're going to have a result that is not reproducible. Mm-hmm. Okay, let, let, what I'm trying to say is this. If we look enough into throwing a coin, we're looking at, if we throw, okay, here's the hypothesis. If I throw a coin 10 times, 10 times it will be tails. If I do that experiment times enough, eventually I'm going to have some positive ones. Mm-hmm. And for many years, you know, you couldn't, uh, you could hide the negative studies and only pu- publish the positive ones. And and we have this sea of journals publishing all kinds of small questions and case reports and things. And 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 and, and so okay, so what do we do with all that knowledge? Is it even possible to read everything, to be on top of everything, right? So as a result, possibly as a result of that difficulty, possibly, um, we, we have what I started to call oral tradition in, psycho- in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. So you are in training, right? You can't possibly read every freaking publish- publication. And on top of that, you cannot read the publication to the level of saying, this finding is inconsistent. This is the methodological gaps. Too many to make a statement, right? But if you just read the abstract, everything looks very good. Um, and then you have a, a, a mentor, you have a, a, an attending or someone that is teaching you, and he says something that he also heard from somebody else. Mm-hmm. Oh, we gave an example two episodes ago, I think, with ADHD. You know, there's no evidence that chronic use of stimulants leads to addiction. 
Mm-hmm. So that stuff was said for kids based on a couple of studies. That stuff's not said for adults who already has an addiction. You cannot use that expression. You cannot transpond that expression from that population to adults who already struggle with addiction and ADHD to make that state. It's just too much of a stretch, mm-hmm. right? Um, so psychiatry, because possibly, because, I don't know, I suppose because of that, is permeated by these statements. And people hear it, they repeat it, and they use that to guide their actions in clinical work. And usually the result is inconsistencies, mm-hmm. right? Inconsistency. For example, one thing that people repeat all the time, antidepressants take two to four weeks to have effect. So, so that's not true, right? Two to four weeks is what it takes for the respondents to separate from the placebo folks. But that's not the same as saying it wasn't working from week one. Mm-hmm. It's a very different statement, right? But, okay, because of that misunderstanding, people repeat it and they keep repeating. This is not me saying, man. If you open, you know, in the, in the podcast, because... In, in the in the mentorship because you know one of the tasks that I, I, I kind of set myself up to was really let's kill this damn oral tradition thing let's do things and and the, the way I find we could do that is by reducing the gap between guidelines and practice because mm-hmm. the bigger that stuff is the, the worse it is for patients now we saw patients cannot tell what doctor is good what doctor is bad because if they like you then you're good which is a good thing right mm-hmm. But really, is that what makes it, right? Whatever you're doing, but if you're a likable guy, whatever you're prescribing, then, you know, no. So, so I think we could have, we could have a little bit more um, objective measures there. So how, how exactly do you get around this thing? So I, I think uh, one thing is adopting um, a practice really based on specific literatures. Um, you know, a lot of people, I, I, so a lot of the people I supervise I should say mentor. A lot of people that are involved in the mentorship, they're going to send me articles saying, hey, look, I found this article saying this thing. And it could be like a very exotic or sexy finding or relationship between factors and diagnosis or response to a medication or something like that. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, we're really not in the business of, I don't think we're in the business of trying everything. We're, We're in the business of trying whatever is proven. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a handful of patients that I inherited that responded to a medication that I that failed randomized controlled trials, for example, that I don't see as very effective. My, my job is not to find those exceptions because the only way to find those exceptions is to expose every patient of mine to every available medication in the world, and that's not what I do for a living. What I do for a living is, okay, this guy has this disorder, seems to have this disorder consistently, What do we know that works for most people with that disorder? Where is my highest yield here? And then I go for that treatment as opposed to try whatever stuff is out there. So a way to get around um, what is this thing, this oral tradition is really um, it's to follow guidelines or Mm meta-analysis. So you can go to Cochrane meta-analysis or systematic reviews and you're going to find a lot of questions already answered there one thing that happens uh, one thing in psychiatry also one thing that happens is the the you can right you can so you're going to have a patient with psychotic symptoms and he's already one one antipsychotic there's absolutely 
there's maybe a handful of, of, of augmentation strategies where you, it's justifiable to throw two antipsychotics at a patient, mm-hmm. right? And every other strategy doing that failed, and there's research to show that it failed. Um, but, you know, because we have this sort of a pseudo-knowledge, because we don't quite know what these medications do in the brain. But anyways, if you don't have a lot of data, you're going to say, well, this medication acts this way and that medication acts that way. I'm going to put them together and they're going to have a better result. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's not true. You know, but there is a couple of augmentation strategies for antipsychotics that are proven. And usually the results are very modest. Well, can you, can you mention some of those? Yeah, sure. So, for example, let's say you're taking a second generation antipsychotic and, and you have a lot of... Uh, oh, okay, here, well, here's one. You're taking Risperdal and you have a good response to Risperdol mm-hmm. um, or Risperidone. And, but you have uh, hyperprolactinemia or, or uh, galactorrhea, which is like you can have because of prolactin as a side effect, increasing prolactin from the risperidone, you can have breast discharge. Men can have breast discharge and mm-hmm. breast development, and that's not cool. So you can take a medication called aripiprazole that even in lower doses is going to minimize that impact. And at some point, we found that aripiprazole could also minimize the impact on... Um, on uh, cholesterol levels and metabolic profile uh, side effects mm-hmm. to an extent. So that's one of the combinations. Uh, you take a patient who's already on clozaril, who has failed everything else, and, and there's a little bit of data saying, yeah, if you add a little bit of Haldol on top of it, you can improve a little bit the results. So don't put too much of a dose of Haldol because the side effects will be brutal and the benefit's not quite there. So it's kind of go slow, right? Uh, so there are a few of those that are justifiable. But because during training you say, oh, can I do this? Yes, yes, you can. Because the sky is the limit in psychiatry, right? You don't have to follow guidelines. So every kind of mixing of medication goes. And then when you use, and, and people are listening to me and they're now probably shaking their head because they, they have inherited cases that got completely dirty. And they're taking three, four, five medications at times, two or three medications of the same class with, with combinations that are not justifiable. Mm-hmm. Right. So a way to get around it is to to stick to data, and the data. Uh, one book you know I recommend is the in, in mentorship is the Maudsley prescribing guidelines because, first of all, they are quite skeptical, and they they they, they will say okay this is an option. They are going to say for example lamictal lamotrigin for depression and bipolarity. They say okay there's this option, but it failed a bunch of trials. Mm-hmm. Right, so it doesn't say a bunch, but it says it failed randomized controlled trials, which some authors will, will say it's more than, than reported because uh, you know statistical analysis can get quite sexy and it's hard to keep up with that. Um, but but that so that's a good a good resource. You find a good guideline book, mm-hmm. and and you follow that stuff, and that's going to prevent you of hurting your patients, and also you know is going to prevent you of just repeating things you heard from someone because he read one article in the sea of 300,000 and come up with a conclusion that you, we don't even know if it will be reproduced in another article. While guidelines and meta-analysis, they really look into a question across time and how many times that question was, it was, it was attempted to be answered and they kind of summarize it and present it mm-hmm. in a very sort of a digested way. So, you know, if you're going through preparing for boards and things like that, you... You can just um, you can just have a high yield and a clean practice by following guidelines. Speaking of which, do you have any board questions related to this topic today? Okay, so I'm gonna have one here. So, a 43 year old female patient presents with negativism, 
mutism, and the tendency. Of the following alternatives, which one represents the, the, the psychiatric disorders more frequently associated with catatonia and the first line of treatment for catatonia? Option A, schizophrenia, antipsychotics. Option B, mood disorders, antidepressants. Option C, mood disorders, benzodiazepines. It's just three choices. <laughs> so it's the third one. So mood disorders are more frequently associated with catatonia than psychotic disorders. And the first line of treatment for catatonia are the benzodiazepines. Mm. If the patient requires persistent treatment with benzodiazepines, then you have a problem in your hands because benzodiazepines are not supposed to be pres prescribed chronically. So you got to find out a good, reliable treatment for the mood disorder underlying the catatonia. That being said, we can have catatonia as an isolated psychiatric diagnosis in the absence of the other guys. And that's a pretty challenging one. And uh, we can cover another time. Well, another time it is because this was a wrap up for today's episode. Before we go, I would like to invite all of the listeners to go check out our website, nepmi.org. We have a lot of content related to psychology and psychiatry over there. And Dr. Nadi, if any other listeners um, have a question for you, uh, what should they do? They go to the, the Mentoring uh, Institute uh, website, the New England Psychiatry Mentoring Institute, the New England PMI, nepmi.org. They have a website, uh, they have a link for an email there. They can shoot the email. They can say, Dr. Nardi, you're wrong about this. I saw this question on the boards. I have this question on the board. I'm questioning this and that. What's the difference between this and that? Whatever. Uh, you can also curse me and say that I don't know what I'm talking about. I'll be, I'll be happy <laughs> to address what you're saying uh, with uh, arguments. Uh, it will make my day. All right, Dr. Nardi, very good to have you here. And I hope to see you next week. We'll be there. This podcast was offered by NEPMI.org.